Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The year 1993 was one of the most noteworthy in Pennsylvania's history. Governor Robert Casey was diagnosed with a rare disease that threatened his life. In June of that year, the governor underwent a double organ transplant, getting both a new heart and liver. At the time, Governor Casey was only the seventh person in the world to undergo that procedure. Governor Casey survived, but he was out of office for six months. Lieutenant Governor Mark Single became Pennsylvania's acting governor. More than 20 years later, Single has written about that year in a new book, Mark Single, A Year of Change and Consequences. Governor Single, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All right. My first question is, what took you so long? To write the book, to you mean? To write the book, yeah. Well, it was that pesky little thing of earning a living <laughs> after I left office, having been defeated in 1994. I really was um, not sure of the direction my life was going to take. And since I had no marketable skills whatsoever, I got into the lobbying business and created a uh, government relations firm, and I've been doing that to uh, put uh, food on the table and to uh, secure my uh, my income for a while. So that took precedence for the last couple of years. Well, but you still are very much uh, plugged into uh, the Pennsylvania political scene. One thing I have to admit about the book, before we get into uh, talking about 1993, I have to admit that I was surprised. I th- think I know a lot about what goes on in state government, but I was surprised at the schedule that you kept as lieutenant governor, because the lieutenant governor a lot of times is in the background, and you know m- most people don't know what they do. Describe a typical day as lieutenant governor in 1993. Well, first of all, let me say that I'm getting that reaction a lot, because uh, it's typical for the average citizen to just kind of denigrate their politicians and their leaders. And and to think that, you know, they're all a waste of time, and particularly in today's modern era, where there's been so much negativity. But the truth of the matter is that it doesn't really matter what your party is, what your philosophy is. Most people run for office in the first place to work hard and to, to do a good job for their constituents. And if you ask anybody who's had any success in politics, they'll tell you that it is arduous and it is a tough schedule to keep. And there are demands on your time. One of the motivations for writing the book was to express that and to say, look, you might think that, uh, you know, lieutenant governors, vice presidents, second in command in businesses are running uh, uh, obscure lives and not really mattering much. But uh, there's a great responsibility to standing by and being ready to serve. And that requires uh, taking your share of the events and the schedule uh, requirements and uh, making sure that you're prepared at the uh, the time that it comes. So w- there's a section in the book in particular where um, I just took the schedule for one day and said, you know, rather than talk about it and rather than just try to describe it and embellish it, just, just put it out there. And it, it starts at 6 o'clock in the morning and ends at midnight. And I, that is was fairly typical because of all of the responsibilities that I was facing, uh, both as uh, uh, the acting governor and lieutenant governor, and throw into that president of the Senate that was uh, divided, you know, 50-50, and then add to that the potential of being a candidate in the coming year. So uh, I had a whole bunch of hats that I was wearing, and each of them 
amounted to a full-time job. Uh, but describe that typical day as lieutenant governor before you became acting governor. Well, hey, typically I, I would kind of uh, r- get up early enough, and uh, I was fortunate enough to have uh, this uh, contingent of executive detail state troopers and forever grateful for them. Uh, they, they were not just very effective and very professional, but they got to be very good friends and very helpful. The reason I mention that is because I could take that half hour going from Indiantown Gap into the lieutenant governor's office to catch up. So I would consume a couple of newspapers, uh, check, uh, uh, you know, whatever the schedule was for that day and get myself prepared so that by the time I walked into the office, I already had 30 or 45 minutes of prep. Uh, And then there was a a slew of calls to return and that kind of thing, in-office kinds of responsibilities. And then a full day of scheduling that would occur between, say, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, and then the day was just beginning. Uh, I'd find myself uh, presiding over the Senate, uh, and that got to be very contentious because there, there were a lot of political issues at the time and things like that. And then I would typically um, be able to sneak out in the early afternoon to continue on my own uh, you know, appointment schedule. And uh, on a typical day, that uh, was filling in for the governor on some things that he couldn't quite get to. Uh, or, you know, pursuing my own speaking schedule and things like that. So uh, a typical day was uh, about 7 in the morning to about uh, 6 in the evening. And, you know, to dispel what maybe some people think as well, uh, it was not just ceremonial, Lieutenant Governor appearing for the governor, at, uh, although there, there were some of those things, but in official capacity uh, where actually policy is being carried out. That's right. Every lieutenant governor has to take stock of what their responsibility is. And it can be summed up in in one phrase, and that's you do what the governor tells you to do. And that's a good thing because the job of governor is almost overwhelming. Uh, it's uh, whether whether you're a mayor or a county commissioner or a governor or a president, executive authority means that you have to make the decision and you have to move the pieces around. You have to keep the trains running on time. And that's a that's a real job. So the lieutenant governor's responsibility is to ease that burden on the governor as much as you can. Uh, and fortunately, uh, the governor and I had a good relationship and he uh, entrusted me with a, a number of responsibilities. In addition to the constitutional duty of presiding over the Senate, chairing the Board of Pardons, uh, and having my own, you know, directions and schedules with my consultation with my own staff. Um, I also was the chair of a task force on recycling, for example, uh, and uh, was uh, in charge of the Pennsylvania Energy Office at a time that was crucial in, in order to uh, begin to take advantage of our natural resources, like natural gas and things like that, um, and, and a number of things. I, at one point, we counted there were eight different boards and commissions that I was the chair of, uh, just in, in order to keep the, them running on behalf of the governor. There was also uh, some spillover that the governor's schedule would get overwhelmed, particularly in his um, second term when the effects of his amyloidosis was kicking in. Uh, and I found myself more and more filling in for him in uh, capacities that uh, would not otherwise occur, like uh, sitting in on the Economic Development Partnership Board and the, the things that were uh, kind of the, of the core of what was going on. 
And, and that was good because uh, it meant that I was prepared. Uh, when the governor was facing his uh, double organ transplant and he was indisposed, uh, we didn't miss a beat because I was at the table and I was able to uh, take that experience and turn it into actually doing a good job as acting governor. You break the book down by chapters by month. You must have uh, kept an extensive journal, but I want to go to uh, June 1993. Uh, governor Casey, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, he had had a heart attack before um, at a Capitol for a day event, and this is something you did during the course of, of uh, the Casey administration. You go out, cabinet, yourself, the governor, different locations throughout the state, do it for a couple of days. You had mentioned a few months prior to June that uh, you looked at the governor and thought, mm, he doesn't look very healthy. In June, you learned just how unhealthy uh, the governor was. He was suffering from that rare disease you mentioned, uh, but he, you were told he needed a liver transplant, but his heart wasn't strong enough to withstand the operation, so he needed a double transplant, as I said in the introduction. Only six times before worldwide had it occurred. Tell us about the day you heard just how bad the governor's health was and that you would become acting governor. Well, if you take one or two days even before that, uh, the, the governor's chief of staff, Jim Brown, and I had a regular standing weekly meeting where we compared notes and made sure that we were on the same wavelength. And uh, frankly, they could keep an eye on me and make sure that I wasn't stepping out of line. Um, but that week before he went uh, to Pittsburgh was uh, particularly poignant because he brought with him um, legal counsel. And my first thought, I think I say it in the book, is, am I in trouble here? Have I, <laughs> have I done something wrong? And it was to brief me uh, on the fact that the governor had been suffering with this rare blood disease, this amyloidosis. Um, and um, up until then, they were pretty fatalistic about it. The governor thought he was going to die, and he was not telling anybody because that's just the way he was. He, he was knew very, for like two years. He knew it for quite some time and was, was bearing up. And it, it always frustrated me, first of all, because it would have helped you know, our relationship if I had known that. I could have been a, a lot more supportive. But secondly, just on a human uh, level, he didn't have to face that all alone. He had a lot of support and a lot of people that loved him and cared for him uh, that would have eased that burden for them, in, including me. Anyway, the, the presentation that morning was, look, there's finally a ray of hope. There's this guy, Dr. Starzl out in UPMC, uh, who has suggested that the way to solve this problem is to just replace the liver, you know, and uh, that is a complicated surgery because it's such a complicated organ and so on. So we're taking him in for tests uh, to Pittsburgh, and we're very, very hopeful because we believe that this can save his life. So fast forward a couple of days, they're actually in Pittsburgh, and uh, I got the call after the initial testing from Governor Casey and Jim Brown, they were both on the phone, uh, and they delivered the news that it was worse than they thought, uh, that in fact uh, the liver transplant was not possible until they replaced the heart, and the heart was not functioning well and was about to give up. In other words, uh, they weren't letting him out of the hospital, that he was going to uh, either go, for go forward with a dramatic operation or he was going to die in, in the hospital. 
So that being the case, uh, he got on the phone and I said, Governor, uh, how can I help you? Is there something that I can do? He said, stand by. You know, we'll, we're, we're dealing with this. Very brave, very, very strong, and uh, it was a very good personal conversation. Um, and I had a lot of questions. Well, how long is this going to take? Do you, you know, now you need a heart and a liver. Uh, how are you going to find a donor? Is the, are we talking six weeks, six months? Uh, what are the implications here? Well, lo and behold, the next day we, we found out that there was a, um, a gentleman by the name of Michael Lucas who was an, uh, unfortunately in the crossfire of a uh, drug-related incident and uh, was killed. And uh, his um, the blood type and all of the other medical markers were correct for the transplant of both of his organs. So we found a donor, uh, and the governor had consented to go forward. So that was the conversation that was pretty stunning, that uh, the governor is going to be on the table uh, at uh, in the morning, uh, and you're going to be the acting governor as of uh, 5 a.m. on June 13th. Uh, and in fact, I had the letter sitting on my desk when I arrived. Uh, and uh, essentially, that is all that was required to transfer the power of governor from uh, the governor to the lieutenant governor. And it was uh, remarkable, to say the least. Um, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but in order to present the issue and to uh, steady the ship of state and to send the message that things were under control, we held a press conference at 10 o'clock that morning in my office, and I swear I could feel the weight of 12.7 million people on my shoulders. It was, uh, it was the most, um, you know, amazing experience to actually palpably feel the responsibility of being governor. Uh, and a bunch of other thoughts were going through my head at the time, and I talk about it a bit in the book, but we had to get on with it. We, we had to, uh, we, we didn't have a whole lot of time to uh, think about it or, or, you know, philosophize or anything like that. It was this is the situation. Thank you very much. Now I've got three crises that I have to deal with before noon today. So thank you very much, press. Now get out of here so I can do my job. <laughs> We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. Your mindset at the time. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is former Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor and Acting Governor Mark Single, author of the new book, Mark Single, A Year of Change and Consequences, talking about 1993. We welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. You know, we didn't have email on Facebook back in those days. Maybe it was a good thing while you were acting governor, you know? I don't know if that's good or bad. You could have communicated with uh, Pennsylvanians a lot easier, but uh, there are some good and bad parts to that. Let's mm -hmm. go back to, okay, you are now the acting governor. Uh, you talked about the, the weight of the state on your shoulders. How did you walk that line between, okay, you could have been a caretaker for Governor Casey. How did you walk that line between the governor's agenda, Governor Casey's agenda, and doing your own thing? That that is probably the best question you can ask um, because, um, yeah, there were basically two centers of power. There was a, 
a group that was fiercely loyal to Bob Casey sitting across the hall in the governor's office and my own team that was now stuck with actually governing and making the calls. We made a decision early on to be respectful of the governor's prerogatives and to govern as though we were carrying out his agenda. After all, the title was acting governor. And uh, I, I made that clear in all of our pronouncements to the press and all of my you know, uh, negotiations and operations with elected officials and leaders in the legislature and, and so on. A good case in point is that shortly after the transit, in fact, the day of the, um, the governor's surgery, I got this call from um, somebody representing gaming interest saying, look, the governor's not thrilled about uh, expanding gaming in Pennsylvania, but we know that you've made some statements that you could support slots of tracks, for example, and uh, helping out the horse racing industry and so on. So, well, we're thinking about uh, having a bill introduced uh, while he's out of commission that could end up on your desk, and you could be the guy that brings slots to tracks. I said, uh, don't even don't even come to me with this. Uh, that's completely inappropriate. Uh, yeah, it's I'd not say. where the governor <laughs> is going. And no, I'm not here to, you know, foment a revolution. Uh, and uh, he would be very disappointed. So no, I, and I had to close that door. And I said, look, come to me when I'm governor in my own right in 1995, okay? <laughs> but I, I'm not going to do that for you now. Uh, the other thing that occurred at that time was uh, uh, there was a... Um, a refinancing that had been in the works for several months but was due in New York uh, at uh, at noon. And, and you're right, we didn't have emails, we didn't have sophisticated communications and internet and things like that. So we had to fax in a document to uh, one of the investment houses uh, in order to do about a $700 million transaction. Uh, and uh, I knew nothing about it. And it was kind of unusual, and I really didn't want to put my name on something that I was um, in the dark about. So between the hours of 10 and 12, uh, my counsel sent a note to the budget secretary saying, uh, who's behind this? Uh, who's the bond counsel? Who are the beneficiaries? How much money are we talking about? What does it toss the state? Is this going to be, uh, is this a... Um, uh, industry accepted practice and things like that. They were not thrilled about that in the governor's office, me asking questions like that, but I was the governor and I didn't want to be sued six months later. So uh, to his credit, Mike Hershock, who was the secretary of the budget, scrambled with that and took that assignment on and got those answers back to me at uh, 1145. We put the document on the fax machine, got it to the uh, to the New York folks that had to have the information, and we saved the uh, the state's credit rating uh, mm-hmm. by by doing that. Uh, that was on the first day we're talking yeah. about. Uh, and then the third thing that happened a couple of days later was uh, um, I, I had some emissaries from the House Democratic leadership who were friends of mine, and I needed their help. Uh, come to me and say, you know, we haven't had a raise in a couple of years. So we're we're crafting a piece of legislation for a substantial legislative pay raise for the senators and representatives. I said, 
let me tell you something, fellas. If you put that on my desk, I will veto that with, with you know, great uh, fanfare, <laughs> because you cannot tell me that you're going to do that to me. You know, I don't know if the governor's going to be out for ten days or ten months, but the last thing I want to do is to help you guys get your fingers in the cookie jar. It makes no sense. So they were not thrilled with me, but I had to take that stand. So those kinds of things, um, uh, you, you can't look over your shoulder and ask the opinion of the governor because he's out of commission. And it's your instinct that matters. I didn't want to debate it. I didn't want to have 23 different opinions about it. Uh, that's, that's the essence of executive power, and I was able to step up and, I think, do the right thing. Now, you said earlier about how most people in elected office or in politics get into it for the right reasons, but just what you described there, at least two of those things, boy, that sounds cold. I mean, the governor, the governor is out of commission. He's fighting for his life, and you have gaming interest and legislators wanting more money. Yeah, it was pretty. I I thought it was uh, inappropriate to say the least. But uh, I, I mean, on the other hand, look at it from their perspective. Uh, we now have expanded gaming dramatically, and it has increased revenues for the state by about a billion a year. It was the right thing to do. It was just the wrong time to do it. Uh, and the legislators, legislators had a point. At that point, they had not had an increase for 10 years. So it wasn't that I was unsympathetic to it. It's just that it would have been completely the wrong visual to send out to uh, Pennsylvania voters. Mm. So as you've mentioned, you were preparing your own run for governor in 1994. How much was that on your mind? And we're going to talk about the phone calls you had to make, but how much was that on your mind as you're governing, as you're the acting governor? Well, in the immediate instance, in the immediate aftermath of the governor going into surgery, I had to push aside. There were people around me that were building the industry, the little cottage industry of Mark Single for governor, uh, and there were folks that were pressuring me to stay on the phone and start to raise money and that kind of thing. But I had no choice. I said, I cannot do that and really focus on what needs to be done in the short term. So all you people go away for a while. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you in about a month, and, and we'll see where we are. And that's what we did. So we basically took the um, uh, month of uh, June and July and really focused on, uh, you know, tying up the loose ends. And there are, there are bills that had to be passed in conjunction with the budget that had just been passed. There were, there were key landmark pieces of legislation that were working themselves through that I believed in and things like that. So I, I really did have to subjugate the political ambition for actually doing the job for at least a little bit. But uh, to be honest about it, it's never far from your mind if you're a politician, and it takes a huge amount of work to put the pieces in place to run for governor. So we got back to it fairly quickly, and at the end of that summer and going into the fall, there was an increasing amount of time that was spent uh, on political uh, items and making phone calls and things like that. Uh, we didn't do it in the office. We didn't do it um, as part of the... Uh, official functions. We had a separate campaign office. Yeah, we had people go to phones. jail for that here. Yeah, you don't, you, you, even back then, it was clear to me that, no, you can't mix the two. And we didn't. 
but there was a very aggressive schedule of uh, political events and political fundraising calls uh, on top of the official events that uh, had to be done. And that happened uh, throughout the latter part of 1993. Now, when you did get into that and you said making calls, when you were making calls, you were asking for money. Yeah. For those of us who have never run a campaign of any kind, uh, let alone one as big as a run for governor, that seems awkward to call people on the telephone and ask for money. Was it? No. <laughs> You're not going to ask me for a loan here today or anything, are you? I'll tell you why, and I think I say this in the book, that um, for me, anyway, um, my first uh, memories of getting into politics, running for state senate uh, in the Johnstown area, were very, were very positive. I, I'm, I guess I'm a little strange that way, but I like knocking on the doors, making my case, spending about 30 seconds explaining to people where I was coming from, why I was running, and asking them for their vote. And uh, the worst that happens is that they say no, and you move on to the next one. It was that kind of retail politics that uh, I found to be really engaging. In fact, I'm one of those weird folks that kind of draws the strength, like a like a like a performer, you know, draws the from the audience and does a better performance. I I get that. So uh, making those phone calls and asking people for money was um, as close as I could get to that retail politics. So I met a lot of people over the phone and was always respectful. I mean, you you reserve the right to say no to me if you want to, um, but. Uh, uh, it was part of the process, and people who complain about raising money or knocking on doors probably shouldn't be in the business. You know, you have to do it with a little grace and a little style, uh, and most people complain about it. But uh, to be honest with you, it, it, it's at least the human contact that uh, um, makes politics what it is. Mm. And we're talking, you know, something that happened uh, 23 years ago. So we asked the question two ways. Was there too much money that needed to be raised to run for governor then and today? Are we talking too much money? In other words, do we need some kind of change, some kind of reform that limits the amount of money or somehow gets some control under the spending? Yes and yes. Um, even as I'm saying that I like the interaction, it would have been a hundred times better if I didn't have to end the conversation by saying, can you send me a thousand bucks? Because then you could have talked about issues and you could have explained to people and you could have energized them based on your vision and, and brought them on board uh, in a loftier plane rather than, oh, I now have an investment in this guy. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that the, um, the costs that are associated with running for office um, uh, have, were, were very bad. Back then, uh, we, we were projecting that we needed to raise about $10 million in order to run for governor. That has exploded. Uh, I think uh, Ed Rendell set the record for uh, Democratic candidates and raised 30 or $40 million. And now, in the Senate race this year, they've already blown through $50 million between the two of them. And it's it really is awful. It, it's really way too much money. Uh, but the problem is that is the cost of media. It, it really is the cost of television still that drives that number and drives people to 
raise the money to get their message on TV to to, uh, to um, perform successfully. So something's got to give. Uh, I've always been for some kind of a public financing arrangement and limitations uh, that can be set. And I am certainly uh, for uh, doing something about Citizens United. That opened the floodgates. The Supreme Court ruling that corporate interests can dump as much money as they want in the process has, uh, has really um, complicated the situation and has really forced candidates into a, a, a continual fundraising cycle, and that's not good. Did you ever have anyone during those conversations say to you, ask you the question, Mark, what am I going to get for this? Uh, probably, yes. Uh, and uh, you must, uh, and this is a good lesson for anybody uh, in modern politics to learn, you have to be uh, prepared and, and ready when that signal you know, goes off to uh, rebut it forcefully. It's not enough just to ignore the comment. You have to say, and, and we actually had a, a small speech, uh, you understand that there's no connection between a political contribution and services later. We, we don't operate that way. It's illegal, and we can't make that connection. So the, the few times that people that maybe didn't know any better might have said, well, yeah, I, I can contribute to your campaign. What I'm looking for is in those cases, we were able effectively to say no. Um, I'm giving you my general outlook of where I'm going as a political leader. Uh, you're investing in me and the trust that I'm going to be responsive to the kinds of issues that you're interested in. But no, I, I cannot give you a specific quid pro quo commitment. Right. It's it's not right. It's illegal. And um, you, you need to be attuned to that. One of the hats that you were wearing, as you mentioned earlier, the lieutenant governor is president of the Senate. And uh, you had a very close majority, and, it, and then there were a couple of special elections that were held in there, so there was almost even between Republicans and Democrats. You describe in uh, detail uh, a fairly contentious year in the legislature. Um, you know, today we talk about polarization. Compare then to now. I mean, uh, was it as polarized then as it is now? Well, in a sense, it was worse uh, in the sense that the numbers were so close that uh, it was 24-24. There were two uh, senators who had one had gone to Congress, another had passed away. And um, when it's uh, even like that, the lieutenant governor, the president of the Senate, is the deciding vote, at least on procedural mm-hmm. matters. So the, um, the question of who controls the body really is the majority vote plus the lieutenant governor. So I had that on my shoulders as well because there was a coup that occurred uh, just before 1993 began. There was a defection of one of the senators Mm -hmm. from Republican ranks to Democratic ranks, and then there was an immediate coup that would take over that the the Democrats executed, and the Republicans were furious. And they were furious for the entire year. I was going to say that. 1994. That that, uh, anger did not go away. Oh, they didn't let me up for air, or they didn't let the Democrats up for air, and you can't blame them. You know, it's 
they uh, have their own direction and their own philosophies and their own version of what they would have liked to seen done. Uh, and the Democrats, for the first time in 10 years, were controlling uh, the vote in the Senate. And we had a, a, a short season of governance that we protected. Um, so, yeah, there, it was contentious and it was dead even for most of that period of time that uh, I was uh, lieutenant governor. Uh, and it got um, uh, heated, and there were some exchanges on the floor that were a little loud, a little amusing. But here's the difference. It really wasn't personally mean-spirited. People were performing their rules as they saw it. Uh, and even the most contentious kind of uh, back and forth that's documented in the book uh, via the Senate journals um, it, it was not as mean-spirited as you see today. Um, for example, you know, when you listen to debates and you hear people calling somebody a liar, you know, or crooked, you just didn't do that. That was not only inappropriate, but it was counterproductive because uh, what the... Um, uh, the philosophy was, was that if you're throwing mud, you're losing ground. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your own cause. Uh, but for some reason, the coarseness of political discourse and the direction we've taken has slipped so badly that students and observers are looking at that and thinking, well, that's the way you have to campaign, campaign today. You have to trash the other guy. No, you, you do not have to trash the other guy. Uh, even my fiercest adversaries remain my closest friends today because they were doing their part, I was doing my part, and after a contentious day on the floor of the Senate, we could shake hands and go and have a beer. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Will it ever go back to that way? I hope so. I hope so. Um, I think that there are uh, uh, folks who are adults uh, at the table, at the federal and the state level. I think that there are people that really want to do the right thing. Uh, and I, I mean, if you look at Pennsylvania and after a kind of a 18 month period of feeling each other out, I think it's fair to say that, for example, Governor Wolf and the Republican leadership sat down and reasoned together and got a budget done on time and got some significant pieces of legislation done. So it shows you that even against daunting odds, if the other party is in control of both the House and the Senate, it is possible to make progress. I think you have to be rational. I think you have to be reasonable. You have to respect where the other guy is coming from uh, and sit down honestly and operate in good faith. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. You're home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is former Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor and Acting Governor Mark Single. He's author of a new book, Mark Single, A Year of Change and Consequences, talking about 1993. Question or comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, you mentioned um, that you had a pretty good relationship with Governor Casey, but you also describe in the book that there were times where the two of you did not see eye to eye and that it was strained at times. <laughs> it, it definitely was. <clears throat> I like to tell people that uh, it was a like a father-son relationship, and I just wanted the keys to the car once in a while. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it was always respectful, even when we were disagreeing. Um, and uh, I, I, again, I had no idea that he was, um, uh, you know, operating under, under this cloud of um, 
a disease that he w- was pretty, as I said, fatalistic about. Uh, so I'm looking back on it, I think I could have been more um, uh, supportive and appreciative and things like that. I just didn't know. I just didn't know. So when I, for example, was toying with the idea of running for United States Senate and he was lukewarm, uh, I felt that it was condescending. And, you know, this is a direction that is important to me. So I tell people that, uh, no, Governor Casey and I had a very good, strong working relationship. Uh, We just disagreed on little things like my future, for example. (laughs) Well, another thing that you disagreed on, and I doubt it could be described as little, was abortion. Abortion was a major issue during the Casey administration. Uh, Bob Casey was a devout Catholic Uh, who was staunchly pro-life and had a national reputation. 1992, one of the big controversies at the 1992 Democratic National Convention is Governor Casey wanted to speak as a pro-life Democrat, and he was kept from doing that. You also are Catholic, uh, but you're pro-choice. This created a bit of a rift between you and the governor. Well, it shouldn't have. And, uh, you know, in a broader sense... There is much more commonality on this issue than people want to believe. Now, tell me about that, because it's hard for me to see it even from behind. I know. It, it, well, because it is so complicated and because people legitimately feel so passionately on both sides of the issue. Uh, but it goes back to what we were saying before. You, what you need to do is to respect both sides of the issue. Uh, on, on the one hand, people who are ardently, quote, pro-life, end quote, sincerely believe that there's a life at risk and they're protecting the the most vulnerable unborn in our society. There's nothing wrong with that. I get that. It makes absolute sense to me. On the other hand, as Americans, you cannot tell more than half of the population that the government's going to tell you what to do on such a crucial issue. So the concept of uh, pro-choice and being able to choose the right thing is a right that is defended by the Blackman decision, uh, by Roe versus Wade. It's the law of the land that makes sense. So where are we in the middle? And by commonality, I'm saying that the the, the folks who are um, pro-life, but um, with exceptions, are very similar to the folks who are pro-choice, uh, but with some reasonable restrictions. So it's that kind of gray area that we find ourselves in that's, <clears throat> excuse me, probably uh, where we need to be as a country, respecting each other's positions on the issue uh, and stop making uh, moralistic judgments about folks on the, uh, on the extremes of the issue. So it wasn't that we were disagreeing on the um, the concepts. Uh, we were disagreeing on the level to which the federal government should be involved in the issue. Uh, and Bob Casey's position back then was was as probably as far to the right uh, of pro-life, uh, like a Jesse Helms position on it. Um, and I, I just couldn't be there. I just wasn't there. So it, it did cause some contention between us, but it wasn't as um, overriding as you think. Uh, and it wasn't the issue, you know, that caused uh, problems. The issues that caused problems were more about politics and directions and whether I should be, you know, leaving the reservation and off of my own running for something and things like that. But it, but it um, was part of the discussion that... Uh, 
went on. And I always feel badly that we never quite resolved that. You know, I wanted to sit down with him and come to some kind of a conclusion on that issue so that we could respect the subtle differences between us. Ultimately, the governor wasn't very supportive of your candidacy for governor. And the thought always was that it was the abortion issue was the reason why. Was it the only reason why? No. Uh, no, I, I, I don't want to take anything away from him because I think the governor was uh, sincere uh, and a leader uh, on the issue. And uh, I admire his uh, uh, position and his uh, tenacity. Uh, but um, I think he also respected my point of view and the point of view of many people, <clears throat> excuse me, who, who legitimately understand that sometimes there are rights that we defend that make us cringe a little bit. Uh, but, you, you, you know, in, the, in America, um, there are um, certain responsibilities that we have to uh, pay for our freedoms. And one of those is to respect people's right to make the right decision and not force that on them from the state. Uh, and and so, again, that's a discussion that's legitimate and we can continue to have. But that wasn't the driving factor. The driving factors uh, had to do with the governor's hesitancy for the, the present administration. He never really was... Uh, very fond of uh, Bill Clinton and the Clinton machinery that was being put in place. And I was. I was a supporter and a friend of the president and uh, Hillary Clinton way back then. Uh, and uh, the governor had different perspectives of who should be in what roles uh, and was um, uh, supportive of my candidacy in 94, but a little lukewarm. He He could have been a whole lot more... Uh, uh, full-throated about it, and let's just say that uh, uh, he went fishing a bit in that uh, in that race. Let's talk about the Clintons because that time in 1993, a lot of the things that uh, the Clinton administration did, we're hearing about during this presidential campaign. NAFTA, in particular, uh, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, was a supporter of NAFTA, getting it uh, uh, agreed to. He contacted you and wanted your support for the North American Trade Agreement, and you said no. <laughs> that's that's a uh, I, I think that's a great story in the book um, because it was uh, well into the service as acting governor, and I'm at my desk and there's a phone call uh, from the White House, and and sure enough, I answer the phone and there's a, a Mark. How are you doing? <laughs> it's a good Clinton. How, how are things in Pennsylvania going? You know? And I said, uh, Mr. President, it's good for, good to hear from you. And he said, yeah, you're doing a good job. And he was very pleasant. We had a nice uh, little exchange and, and that kind of thing. And he says, you know, I could sure use your help on NAFTA because uh, we need your congressional delegation. Can you round up support for votes on the floor that was coming uh, pretty quickly? And uh, uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, I had done my homework on this and uh, had an extraordinary meeting in my office with my own Secretary of Commerce uh, and my Secretary of um, Agriculture, in addition to all kinds of other research material. But Commerce was saying, this is dangerous for us because of uh, the 
out-migration of manufacturing jobs. And what we're doing is setting ourselves up for 20 years of job losses. And the Secretary of Agriculture was saying, no, 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 we're going to be selling so much agricultural products to Mexico and to Canada that on balance, it's good for us. Um, but I had come from Western Pennsylvania, and I saw what happened in the Rust Belt and the denigration of the steel industry and manufacturing, the coal industry, and so on. So I sided on the side of um, this isn't a good deal for us. So after the the president made his little pitch and said, can you round up some votes for me? I said, uh, no, Mr. President. As a matter of fact, I can't. Uh, I'm going to ask our congressional delegation to oppose it. Uh, because I just don't think that it's beneficial for Pennsylvania. I get where you're coming from, but you're going to have to get your votes from states that are going to benefit from it, not from the states that are going to get hurt by it. And there was silence on the phone for a few seconds. And then he said, uh, I understand. That's what I thought you'd say. So it was kind of strange. He was kind of testing to see if I was... Um, going to be malleable on the subject, you know, young guy sitting in the acting governor's chair. And uh, he wasn't really surprised to hear me say no, because he was smart enough, and he is fiercely smart, uh, that it would have been hard for Pennsylvania to support NAFTA. In the 20 years since, as I said, it is, again, an issue here in uh, 2016 in the presidential campaign. Has Pennsylvania been hurt by NAFTA? Yes. Yes, I think it has. In what ways? Uh, I, I think that what it has encouraged is a lot of development on the borders and a lot of development in, uh, in Mexico, you know, which is a good thing. You know, I, I understand the concept of international trade. I understand the need for globalization of the economy and everybody cooperating together. But um, there, there are sections of the country that paid an inordinate price for that kind of globalization. Uh, not just Pennsylvania, but Ohio and Michigan to a degree, and, and uh, states like that in the industrial, um, you know, heartland there. Um, and it's going to take a while, but we're slowly and surely replacing those jobs. I mean, you can look at Pittsburgh as a shining example of uh, surviving NAFTA and surviving the. Um, a shift from the industrial age to the information age. Pittsburgh's a shining example of a corporate headquarters and a much more, more modern technology. So we'll get there. We'll get there. It's just that it was a, a long and painful process, and we're still kind of coming out of that, uh, of the impact of NAFTA and other trade deals. You had an email here that said Bob Casey was not invited to speak at the 92 convention because he refused to endorse the Democratic nominee, not because of his pro-life views. This is a political myth. Well, I, I would say there's some truth to what the gentleman or whoever sent that email is, because what Bill Clinton was trying to do was to uh, do the typical pep rally at a Democratic convention, and the last thing he needed was any kind of dissent. But... The fact of the matter is that the governor was withholding his endorsement of Clinton largely because of his position on abortion, so that they were inextricably tied together. Having said all that, uh, the president and the Democratic Party made a mistake. You, you do not deny the governor from one of the largest states the opportunity to speak. I mean, put him on at two in the morning if you want to, but uh, it was not right for them to deny him the podium. And, and it stung. And, and that... Uh, 
that stuck in Bob Casey's craw for years. I have another emailer wanted to know if uh, you see any possibility of a constitutional convention in Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I don't think, I, not in the foreseeable future. I mean, there are issues of concern, uh, but uh, the, there's there's nothing on the horizon, I think, that is so compelling that it would require that kind of extraordinary approach. So I, I don't think you're looking at a constitutional convention. You were a different kind of acting governor. I mean, as you say, you and Bob Casey had very different personalities. Uh, I used to host the Ask the Governor program on Radio Pennsylvania Network, and I remember you telling me one time that as half Pima, that there was a, a snowstorm, and you were driving from Indiantown Gap down 81, and there was a guy walking in the snowstorm, and you picked him up. You remember that? Yes. Now, <laughs> I do, and the, the guy didn't know who you were, right? <laughs> what can you do? The guy was having trouble walking. So, no, he didn't. So why'd you do that? I mean, I, I can't picture the governor of the state picking up a guy walking along the highway. Oh, no. The guy was in distress, and it was cold, and it was blizzard, and I don't know. He was walking from his car to get to... I don't get wherever he was heading. So now it was a natural thing to do. I don't view that as extraordinary at all. <laughs> but you also, in the book, talk often about a guy outside your office, and you had regular conversations with him. Tell that story. Yeah. It was actually, it, it, uh, there was a gentleman when I first worked in Washington, D.C., that we called Mr. Mornin. And uh, he was just one of those street people that uh, was part of the local color of the uh, of Capitol Hill. But very friendly, and every day it's Sam and say one word, morning, and then you know it, it turns out that the guy's a philosopher, and it turns out that the guy had great wisdom if you just sit and spend some time listening to him. And then I encountered an individual in Harrisburg much the same way, and he was said things that were just so on target for me that I I got to think of him as kind of an oracle. And it was it was very helpful. <laughs> Governor, I want to thank you very much for uh, being with us today. We have about 90 seconds left. What do you want those who read the book to take away? Well, I think it would be appropriate to look at the, the last That's section right. of the book. Yeah. Because uh, what I've just done is distilled the book in that year, for me anyway, into kind of lessons learned. And it doesn't matter if you're a lieutenant governor or if you're a vice president of a firm looking to move up or if you're caught someplace just waiting your turn. Uh, there is a, a value in being prepared. So the lessons learned at the back of this book uh, are, are more than just recollections of a lieutenant governor. They're how, how we should probably move in life, be prepared and to uh, be grateful for your position, uh, to be gracious about how you handle yourself. Uh, and uh, I was very, it was a good run for me and I enjoyed it thoroughly and I wanted to convey to people that you can perform in the public service honorably. Well, I think you downplayed that a little bit because you have 11 pages in the book asking questions about issues. And I think that many, many of those issues from 1993 still hold true today that any candidate for office maybe should uh, look at that and ask themselves. Yeah, what that is was a test that my staff had prepared for my uh, potential run for governor in 1994. And it was grueling, and it was very exhaustive, and I made it a point to be able to answer every single one of those questions. That's what you need to do if you're running for office. 
former governor, lieutenant governor, and acting governor Mark Single. The book is Mark Single, Year of Change and Consequences. Governor, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we are going to be talking about, uh, well, let's see, we're also going to be, we're going to talk about majors in college and how the jobs of tomorrow don't necessarily fit with the majors of college.